Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. That's right, H-E-L-P, help. Why do I keep singing that? You know what it is. Uh, Listen, we all need help. Uh, We act like we could just do it all ourselves. I could just pull myself up by my own bootstraps. The truth is, I don't know anybody who's done anything by themselves. Everybody, all the top performers have coaches, mentors, uh, people that they look up to, colleagues, think tanks, where, where everybody needs help or assistance or uh, uh, support or backup, whatever you want to call it. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, you'll enjoy 10% off your first month of therapy with BetterHelp, right? Because I'm sure you, like me, uh, sometimes I feel overwhelmed uh, or like there's something interfering with my happiness or preventing me from achieving my goals. I'm just like, oh, I just can't seem to crack the code. Uh, BetterHelp will help you with that. The service is available for clients worldwide, no matter where you are in the world, they got your back. Uh, But it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp is not the right solution for you if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others. You can log into your account anytime, anytime, night and day, and send a message to your counselor. How dope is that to be able to reach out whenever you want to? Uh, You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. If you're like me, sometimes I like to walk and talk. You know, I like to get my steps in as I'm talking to my therapist. So that way you don't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. It's so awkward to be in those waiting rooms, especially if you're in a small town and (laughs) some of your friends are going to see the same therapist and now you just have to sit across from each other. That's awkward. So go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and start enjoying your 10% off today. With that said, let's jump into the episode. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Bonnie Garmus, who is a copywriter and creative director and is the author of one of my favorite books, Lessons in Chemistry. I don't think I've read a book and taken so many notes as I have with this book. It's, it's filled out. If you follow me on Instagram at Leo Flowers 2000, you'll see all the notes that I have. Uh, taken and I, I write the page number next to it also. Bonnie Garmus is also an o- open water swimmer, rower, mother of two daughters uh, that she adopted. How beautiful is that? And uh, she was born in California, lived in Seattle, but now lives in London with her husband and dog named 99. I, I don't know if that's from the Jay Z song. With that said, let's jump into the episode. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh my God. I, <laughs> I, I you don't even understand. Yeah, I, I, I don't even, you don't even know. You don't even know, Bonnie. You don't even know. I, I, <laughs> it's mutual, Leo. It's mutual. I just listened to about a thousand of your podcasts. Okay. Oh, so <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm here with Bonnie Garmus, uh, the author of Lessons in Chemistry. And 
I, I'm ex- there's there's too much in this book. I feel like my head's gonna explode. Um, I, and okay, can you just tell the the listeners basically what this book is about, so that I could really launch into what I want to talk about with this book? Okay, I'll try. You know, I'm really bad at this, but I will try. Um, so the book. <laughs> The book is about a woman named Elizabeth Zott. She's fictional. She's a chemist in the late 50s, early 1960s in Southern California. And she gets fired from her job in research because she's pregnant, which back then was a crime, believe it or not. And she ends up becoming a show, a host of a TV cooking show called Supper at Six, a job that she does not want like the rest of us might want. And um, instead of teaching the normal sort of cooking, here's how it's done, she teaches uh, the people who are watching the show chemistry. And that's because uh, cooking really is chemistry. But by doing so, she ends up empowering a nation to start thinking about themselves in a completely different way. And in that way, she becomes a catalyst for change. This book is really a story about empowerment and learning that you're capable and that mm-hmm. the the changes that you want to make you can make um and uh I, I just i just loved it because it's a story that i think that a lot of people men or women can relate to um mm-hmm. it was that your was that was this coming from a personal uh story for you well, some of it, you know, I faced some sexism in my life. Certainly, I don't think there are any women out there who haven't run into it. Um, but I was mostly trying to create in Elizabeth Zott a universal character that everyone, because how many of us have not been maligned or abused or passed over or rejected? I mean, are there any people in the world who haven't really suffered in some way? And I really wanted to create a character who suffers and gets through it. And that's where she came from, basically. The suffering, you know, there's a Buddhist quote that says, like, life is suffering. And, um, and so how, did, how would you describe suffering um, versus pain? Because when I think about suffering, I think about it as more of like, uh, maybe I'm contributing to that. Maybe my, my framing it where like pain is something outside of my control, but how would you describe suffering? I think suffering is chronic and pain has a shorter half-life. You know, pain will probably end, but even after you've reached some, you've done something, you've gotten past something difficult, the suffering continues. For instance, like when you've lost someone you really loved, you don't suddenly get over that. I think we've all been in this position where people say the wrong things to people who've lost someone they've loved. Um, they don't know what to say in the first place. But I think that the suffering is the the chronic ailment. And that's what one of the things I wanted to try to explore in my book was how Elizabeth Zott deals with suffering. And she deals with it by trying to make change. Yeah, you know, one of the things that Elizabeth Zott also um, starts to incorporate into her life is rowing. And <laughs> to me, rowing is suffering. The fact that you have to get up at 4.30 a.m., what? Is that to avoid traffic? Uh, and, and then you're cold and then somebody's yelling at like, so I, I used to live in Marina Del Rey. 
And I was right there on the water. And every morning I would hear the Loyola swim uh, row team going by. And there would just be this tiny person at the front with a bullhorn yelling at them. And I was like, that's no no way to start your day right there. But <laughs> but it's, but they're choosing their own suffering, right? And that's the difference, right? You know, if you lose someone or something really bad happens to you, often it's not something you've chosen. But with if you choose rowing, luckily there's a lot of good with rowing. You know, you're you're an athlete, and so you know that with with any kind of sport, there's going to be some suffering in order to push through and get to the next level. And I think that's one of the actual the selling points of being active and being in a sport because it makes you more resilient. You become used to pain and going, I'll get through this. Um, but with rowing, yeah, there's kind of a ridiculous amount of suffering um, in it. But there's also this tremendous family and camaraderie and cooperation that I feel like just can't be found in some of the other sports that I've tried. So I really love it still. How do you know when uh, suffering is uh, beneficial for your growth, right? And when does suffering become abuse or punishment? Oh, that is such a good question. You know, I think we all suffer and some people have huge loads to carry right now, especially I'm thinking of the Ukraine. Um, I talked with a woman from the Ukraine just the other day and I, I, I was I could barely speak because I was so sad for her and I can't imagine her suffering, but I, I don't know, you know, I guess I think when it becomes chronic, when you, when your race, your thoughts are racing all the time and you can't let it go, that's when, you know, the suffering is becoming more of a permanent pain and you need to really break that cycle because first of all, it doesn't have to be that way. The world isn't all suffering. It really isn't. There's so much beauty. There's so much goodness in the world. But the bad things tend to take up a lot of space and they're very noisy and they're very intrusive. So beating that down takes some perseverance and some some resilience. And, you know, a sport like rowing kind of helps you build this idea of I can face this. I will get through this. Yeah, there's a part in the book where uh you're talking about rowing from the perspective of you can't look where you're going when you're rowing. You're only looking at where you've been. And then you have to focus on your feel on the feel and the skill. Um, I, it, it brings to mind this idea of like anxiety in that I, I see anxiety is looking too far ahead of, of what could be. And when I think about rowing, it's a reminder of just focus on what you're doing right now. And how does that feel? You know, that is, that is a brilliant way to put that. There are all these lists that we are always confronted with. You know, as a writer, I was always confronted with those lists of 30 under 30 and 40 under 40, you know, and all these things that you think, well, if I don't make that list, I'm not good. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. And all of those lists are ridiculous because we all hit our marks at different times. And it does not, it does not reflect badly on you. 
if if you haven't hit your market 20 under 20 or whatever it is i've had a lot of young people contact me you know because i'm 65 this is my debut novel and they're like wow thank god you're 65 because i thought i was washed up at 28 <laughs> There's still a lot to come. You know, there are a lot of, there are so many good things to come too. And it's really important not to judge yourself by these very narrow ideas of, of age or gender or race or anything like that. That is not who you are. That's who society says you are. And society is almost always wrong. So if you can just kind of ignore that, you're going to do okay. I feel like you were rebellious in class. Like you were the student <laughs> questioning the teacher all the time. Is that the case? Oh my God. Well, I was really good as a young child, but as I went on to college, um, I remember I had that bumper sticker above my desk that said question authority. And that's when I, and I did, you know, even as a young child, I did, question a lot of things. I started questioning religion at quite a young age. And I started questioning why certain people were treated certain ways. And I started questioning labels, but I wasn't really uh, combative, I'll say, until I got to college. And I went, wait a minute. Um, because, you know, I read a lot. I read a lot of stories. I grew up on fairy tales. And I thought, um, how come the fairy tales seem more realistic than what I'm seeing in real life? And uh, so for me, it was really, it was really instructive, but yeah, I, I am a little bit, I, <laughs> I can be competitive if I need to. <laughs> I, I love uh, that you drew a distinction between um, questioning and, um, and combative, but there was another word you use. I, I forget what it was, but uh, and I was like, wow. that. Well, that yeah, you can challenge, you know, if you don't agree with something, it's not like you have to fight someone for it, but you can challenge them. You can ask them where their opinions have come from. And I think the most important thing is to ask questions and listen more, talk less. And that's what I think has been really important for me throughout my life is to figure out where people are in their lives right then. I interviewed millions of people by this time for my job. And I really found that out that being a good listener might be the most important skill you can develop as a human being. Wow. It's so true because not only do you get to learn about the other person, but then you get to learn about yourself and like what makes you uncomfortable, what do you resonate with, um, and where, where your values lie. Uh, I think it's Adam Grant has his new book called Think Again, and he advocates uh, being wrong in conversations or acting like you don't know something and how much more fun that is than a, a walk around acting like you know everything because then in pretending that you don't know people end up teaching you something you, you get to listen you know i love that i one of the reasons why i wanted to make my protagonist uh, a scientist and i i'm not a scientist but i wanted to make her a scientist is because the scientists i know and i'm sure that there are you know exceptions to the rule but the scientists i know are the kind of people who are never afraid to say i don't know or I got that wrong, or really messed up there. And I admire that quality so much. And I kind of wish we saw it in more people. 
especially in our government. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think that part of, especially the, the American um, mindset is, um, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstrap, have all the answers, yeah. figure it out yourself. And, and it also like has this underlying current of uh, perfectionism. And I think that so many of us are walking around trying to exude this uh, perfect persona that uh, we end up cracking it at some point. Um, do you find that? I see you nodding your head. Absolutely. You know, I really react very negatively to, to the phrase, whenever anyone says, well, these people just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, what if they don't have boots in the first place? I mean, it just kills me. It's so short-sighted. Um, and so, so, you know, everyone's situation is so different. And to, to decide you know what someone else is coming from is the highest form of egoism and non-listening that I can ever imagine. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, <laughs> I it, in the book, you, you talk about, uh, well, uh, there's two things that, that popped into my mind. Um, earlier, you were talking about hope. In the book, you make a distinction between hope and faith in that one of the characters says, you know, um, I don't have hope, but I do have faith. Well, how do you distinguish those two? Because I, I was when you, when I read that, I was like, oh, I, I, what is she about to say? And, and I was like, oh, I need more. I need to I need to talk to somebody about this hope versus hate faith. And I was like Googling and I was like, no, no, no that's not satisfying. What, what does she think? <laughs> um, well, I think. In the book, the daughter says that she she tries to clarify, and she's talking to a minister. She says, "You know, religion um, isn't religion is pretty much co-opted that word word of faith. But actually, the true definition of faith, even in the dictionary, is faith in oneself. It's not faith in some other thing. And how many of us lack faith in ourselves? When we lack faith faith in ourselves, we lose hope." So the primary thing is to try as hard as you can to believe in yourself. And it's not easy because the world makes it kind of hard. But you know what? You're here. You're doing okay. You may not think you're doing okay, but you're here. And things will get better. But you have to be willing to make some changes, not keep going down paths that don't work for you or put you in contact with people who are very toxic to you. Oh, yeah, that's been so hard. But yeah, that's it. The faith versus hope. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I feel so satisfied now. Um, <laughs> and, and and I'm glad that you talked about faith in oneself because there's also a part in the book where it discusses, uh, I think as Elizabeth is talking about, you know, hard work. Like if you want to get somewhere, you have to work hard. And, and I think Calvin is expressing that, yes, hard work uh, is a part of it, but there's also luck. And then if you don't have luck, then uh, then there's help. And mm-hmm. uh, and so many people struggle with reaching out for help because they think I, I think they can hear like faith in oneself is like I got to do it all myself. But faith in oneself is also faith in the ability to ask for help and being able to get the help that you'll need to achieve, I would assume. That is exactly it. I think there's a certain amount of humility each of us can really use which is to understand that we don't have all the answers. And that is absolutely 100% okay. If we were born with all the answers, well, 
no, we would never be born with all the answers. So, you know, you can't decide that you know everything and you can't decide that you have to or that you should have known something. That's not fair to yourself. So ask, ask for help because you know what? People love to help. They love to give help and they love to be asked to be to be a helper because, you know, people like to feel like they're contributing. And a lot of people in my life have contributed to me, you know, their ideas and opinions. And it's been a great deal to me and it's changed my life. And if I hadn't asked for help, I wouldn't have heard it. Yeah, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about writing a book is at the end are all the acknowledgments, right? Like I've never read a book where there were no acknowledgments at the end, right? Because so many people had to help you because like you said, you don't have a background in chemistry and then yet here you are. What kind of research did you do for the the, the chemistry part? Oh God, Leo, this is sort of embarrassing to say. I I bought a textbook from the 1950s off of eBay and I taught myself very basic chemistry. I could never be a chemist because this is basic chemistry from like 1952 to 1963. That's where it ends. But I just I decided, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn this. I mean, they wrote this book on this. I can do this. And I conducted some of the experiments in my home. And the fire department had to come three times. <laughs> so I had some failures. But you know what? It It was really great to realize I can learn chemistry. I mean, I didn't really want to, but I had to for the book. And you know what? You can really honestly do what you decide to set out and do. You do have to kind of knock down the people who say you're not going to be able to do it. You have to not listen to them. And you do have to ask for help. So after I'd written my book, I asked some chemists for help. And I said, please read this and tell me how wrong it is. And they did. Of course, you know, they were just really helpful. Um, and yeah, asking for help. I think it's, and you know, another really important skill people need to have in life, listening and asking for help. Elizabeth Zott is, is really um, focused on instilling this idea that we are all capable. Is this a message that you received from your mom or is this a message you wished you had received from your mom? Well, I think my mom was really positive. She's a really hard worker. I mean, she was such a hard worker. She didn't have any fingerprints because she worn them off working. Um, that always really struck me as, okay, I guess I haven't worked hard enough. I still have fingerprints. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that she did really think of uh, hard work as almost like a panacea. You know, no matter what, at the end of a session of hard work, whether you're cleaning your bathroom or driving your kids around or, you know, parenting or working at work, you need to realize that you've just done something productive, constructive, and you can pat yourself on the back. You made a difference in someone's life that day. And that was the other thing my mom was really big at about was making a difference in other people's lives. She always said, you don't, you, you always share what you have always. And you always volunteer always because you don't know what other people have gone through to be in the situation they're in. And so you need compassion for them. Wow. Uh, hard work is a panacea. That reminds me of, uh, I just finished uh, Anna Karenina or Karenina or I don't know how you say that. <laughs> but there was one, a character in the book where he's very wealthy. And one day he decides to work out in the field with the laborers uh, with a scythe. And, uh, you know, he's uh, in the fields all day. And 
he was like, I love this. I love that one, uh, the, the exhaustion, the physical exhaustion that he has. And then two, like the midday siesta or, you know, like hanging out under the trees and, and having lunch and the camaraderie that comes with this uh, body of, of work. Um, is that what rowing does for you? Do you feel, is that, is it about the community and the full body exhaustion or is there, is there, is there another level of, of rowing that uh, connects with you? No, I think you summed it up. I think it's the people and the fact, well, there's this thing in rowing where you really have to work together. It's very cooperative sport and you'll see boats that have big, strong people in them and they don't go very fast because they're all fighting each other. And you'll see a boat full of much smaller people, but they're going a lot faster and they don't have the power that, that they should have. And that's, what, that's when you see people working against each other in the boat. And they, don't, they probably don't know that they're working against each other, but they are because in rowing, you wanna, you wanna be exactly the same. And you, so you, you do this thing where you sort of decide if you wanna be a good rower, to give yourself over to the sport. It's not about you. It's about the other people in the boat. So everybody is supporting everybody else. And you may have to leave your ego on the dock. And that is hard for some people. <laughs> but the ones who succeed leave their egos on the dock. I, it's one of the reasons I look up to Tom Brady because, you know, he takes a pay cut and, and he's willing to beg and plead and say, I need you on my team to win. Um, and, uh, and, and so for me, I, I look up to him for that reason. But, uh, what I love about Elizabeth is not the character in the book is that you see her, um, sticking to her guns, empowering other people to live the life that, uh, they feel like that that's within them, that, that they've been stifled, uh, for so long. There's a quote earlier on in the book where you talk about sometimes family. What, what was it? Family? That family can be a source of hard times. You know, it's not stable for everybody. And yeah. I can see being on a row team, being that family that, uh, that it could be like that surrogate family for you. Is that uh, part of it for you? And do you feel like that's part of it for Elizabeth Zott, the character? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I came from a nice family, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't have that benefit of having a supportive family. You know, I think one thing that's curious about families is that we tend to think families are, you know, biological. They're actually chemical. Um, who you get along with is based on the chemistry. Uh, and I, I actually mean physical chemistry, the kind in your brain, the hormones that control how you feel about things. You need to listen to those because there are plenty of people who feel really guilty because wow, they don't know how quite they landed in this family. They don't fit or they're not accepted somehow. Well, family isn't really biological. I think it's really chemical. That's my, that's my personal opinion. But you know, I think that the, the chemistry bears me out here. And that's why it is absolutely okay to seek your family somewhere else. And that's what Elizabeth Zott does. She has a family that she cannot relate to and who does not love her for who she is. And so when she finally allows herself to be less rigid and to let other people in, 
she starts to find her true tribe, her true family. And it's, you know, so of course it's a mixture of, of people. It doesn't have to be all the same people that you're actually biologically related to. Wow. That brings to mind uh, Genghis Khan. He would view people as, uh, or, or men as his andas. And these were men who he felt were his brothers because of what they experienced together and his connection to them. And he thought that was more important than his actual blood brothers. Um, and, and so that, that resonates what you're saying is that in that terms of it being more chemical than biological. Um, this book really taught me about uh, emotions and motivation. Uh, Calvin, uh, one of the characters in the book, described hating weddings. And when he shared his emotional reason for hating weddings, it made me look at my behaviors and other people's behaviors when people say they hate something to really then have more compassion for where that's really coming from. Can, can you talk about that a little bit and that cow and, and his hatred for weddings and what that emotion is? Yeah, I think, you know, for him, he came from a, a very, you know, a sad background. And I think for, and he had no connection with people. He was, you know, he was kind of weird and aloof and really, really smart. And he couldn't find anyone to share his thoughts with. And, and then you go to a wedding and everybody is happy and they look great and you're supposed to, you know, be happy for the couple. But there's that fear if you're there alone that you're never going to be in that position. You're never going to find that person. And I think for Calvin, that was sort of what he was channeling. You know, he was saying that he he just felt funny going to weddings and that he didn't like he never felt attracted to any of the bridesmaids. And then Elizabeth says, probably because of what they were wearing. Um, but really, for him, it was because he feared he would never find someone to share his life with. Yeah, I, I definitely could see that. I I hate ceremonies. That's why I hate weddings. It's, it's too... I'm like, why, why do we need all this? We're, we're just agreeing to live the rest of our lives together. All, all this dancing and uh, formality. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I, I never understood it. Uh, why can't we just get on with this thing? But, uh, <laughs> but there I might be some... I agree with you. <laughs> Did you... I mean, you're, how, how long have you been married, Bonnie? I've been married forever. But let me tell you, I had the worst wedding. And it was very small, but it just absolutely sucked. And... Um, and so we always say, my husband and I always say, we have, we have the world's worst wedding and we have a great marriage. So it just didn't go well, Leo. I mean, people were fighting with each other and oh yeah. So, so it wasn't great. Um, but I agree with you. You know, we were not going to get married. We've been, we've been together for seven years. And the only reason why we decided to get married um, well, we had to because we really wanted to have kids and we were we were adoptive parents and you cannot adopt back then unless you were married. So we went, well, I guess we have to get married. Um, and it was sort of funny because we made it really clear in our vows that we were only doing this for the paperwork, um, but that we did not see this idea of marriage as the way the, you know, the big ceremony the you know, I, I think it's really important to some people and I don't want to, I don't want to put that down, 
but I think for us, it was more, we were looking forward to having a family and we had to get through this paperwork to do it. And so we had a small wedding and then it was terrible. <laughs> well, I've often heard that the bigger the wedding, the shorter the marriage. So oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Like the more money people put yeah. in and, and all that stuff, then it's not going to work out. I mean, I think that's why Jennifer Lopez has been divorced four or five times. And you look at the Kardashians and so they, 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 they need to just get married in their backyard, you know, three people and, yep. or at, just go to the court and sign some papers and get out of there. That's, that's, that's the lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, that. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I journal a lot and, uh, so I have two questions, a two-part question. One is, do you journal? Because I would imagine being a writer and a, and a, and a copywriter, um, journaling might just seem redundant. But, um, but Calvin, uh, one of the characters in the book, he writes down his fears and he writes down facts. I thought that was an interesting way of journaling. Where did that idea come from for you? Well... You know, I do sometimes write things down. Most of the things I write down in a notebook are about stories I have in my head that are developing or characters that I, I think maybe should go a different way or do do something or they say something. I will write that down. But I found out personally that when I have fears, it helps to write them down and then follow those with facts because most fears are unfounded. Something like 98% are never, ever, ever going to occur. Now, that would mean that I'd worry about the other 2%. But 98% is a pretty pretty high margin of um, acceptability that things are going to be okay. And the way I would convince myself of that is to write down facts following that. that that's beautiful right there because people are always ask me, how do I journal? And, and I journal, um, I have different methods of journaling depending on what I'm experiencing, but I like the idea of fears and facts. Just two columns. That just sounds neat. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you said you're an adoptive parent. How, how old are your two kids? Oh my gosh. They're old now. They're 28 and 30 and they're great. Um, I, I feel really lucky. Our family's very, very close. And uh, I think that, I, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. They are fantastic people and I love being with them and we love being together as a family. You know, to this day, we have to live, you know, we're living in different countries, which is really hard, but we talk every day. Um, we, you know, thank God for FaceTime, but you know, we also make time for each other all the time. We see each other as often as possible. Um, and the reason why that is, is you know, partly we're very close, but we have a lot of fun together. We have a lot of fun together and we laugh a lot together and we have these memories that we've made together. And it's just, I'm really lucky that way. I mean, you know, we've had our normal family upsets and arguments, but at the end of the day, um, we are very close. We love each other very, very much. And I think we four are the most important people in our lives. And we four all know the same thing, that that's true, that we are a very strong family and we're lucky to have such a strong base. Speaking of family, 
how, and you talked about, yes, you have your arguments. I think that so many people do get into arguments uh, uh, right before this podcast, Michelle and I were in our couples therapy session, um, it, not over arguments, but, you know, just it, learning how to communicate more effectively with each other and connect on a more intimate level. Um, how do you make amends after an argument uh, within your family? How, how do you resolve conflict? Such a good question. So I think the very most important thing that we say is, I'm sorry. And we mean it. Um, I think an apology, a spoken apology, and admitting things got out of hand, admitting your role and things getting out of hand, admitting that maybe you exaggerated a few things. This is true for me. You know, I go, you never clean up your room. Well, no, not never. That is not accurate. You know, or something like that. Or it would get, you know, uh, you know, are you sure you should be doing this? Um, and, and so I try, I think for me, it was hard, you know, but sometimes I, I would have to say, oh, it was a little preachy. Um, no, I was super preachy. Uh, no, I was trying to get you to do exactly what I wanted, whether or not that was right for you. It was what I wanted so it wouldn't embarrass me. And for that, I apologize. I think admitting mistakes is the most important thing when you're dealing with family, being willing to say, I'm sorry I made a mistake. I'm sorry I made you feel bad. Yeah, unfortunately, it's the one thing we don't learn in school that I think we should all learn. Because I think in school, you just learn to say, I'm sorry. And you're told like, all right, that's it. Now, you know, you go, go back and play. But in adulthood, you learn that saying, I'm sorry, is not even close to being <laughs> enough uh, to make amends. And so that art of how to apologize, and you mentioned taking responsibility for your part and acknowledging um you know, what you could have done differently or will do differently in the future. Uh, I mean, there's nothing, when I read these celebrities apologizing, I'm like, oh God, you just made it worse. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, you need to fire whoever's on your team. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, they go, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, or, you know, um, and it's, it's obviously just one of these fake apologies. I hate fake apologies. And so in our family, we have a rule about that. No fake apologies. If you're not really ready to apologize, then give it another 10 minutes or give it, you know, a few hours or whatever it takes until you can calm down and you can see things a little clearer. It doesn't mean we all have to disagree and uh, agree. It does just mean that we have to remember that we all have each other's best interests at heart and that we get to have different opinions and we still love each other at the end of the day. Name calling is unacceptable but we've done it. <laughs> and, um, you know, you have to own it and say, yeah, I did that. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm going to try not to do that again. You, you know, the, the title I could see uh, being off-putting for some people because of chemistry. Like, I, mm -hmm. I, like maybe only three people in the world uh, were excited about taking chemistry in high school. <laughs> Um, right. Like, chem like what chemistry? I like, I took earth science in high school, but, um, but I, as I'm getting older, I'm 46 now, I'm, uh, falling back in love with cooking. 
and I'm falling in love with science in general, whether it's astronomy or physics or, or what have you. So for this book to combine both cooking and chemistry, I was like, here's an opportunity for me to learn something. Because the one thing my mom taught me as a kid is if you have the right teacher, you can learn anything. And I believe that there's, there's no topic that you can't learn if you have the right teacher who can, who can teach you. And I see you nodding your head because I, I, because in a book, you also talk about how the problem with education is that it's boring. How would you spice up (laughs) our our educational system? You know, um, I always hear how great Finland's educational system is. You know, the kids love going to school and everything. And we have a Finnish friend and I asked him one time, um, what was it like? And he goes, well, I don't really understand how to answer that question. I said, well, did you like going to school? And he goes, everybody loves going to school. And I thought, oh, that's different. Um, so I asked him and he said, well, so in the, in the Finnish system, it, when I went at least, you go to school and you work on things that you're really curious about, you're interested in. And you do all these hand, you know, they're, they're, it's not very rote. You're doing all these projects all the time. And you are constantly going, well, what about this? And what about that? And he said, you know, for kids to engage on this level is really fun for them. Um, And so it becomes this, for them, they want to go to school. It's a day of play because who knows what they're going to do. And they follow this kind of meandering path. But at the same time, the teacher's saying, how does math, you know, let's see the math behind what we're just talking about right now. But what he said was that in the classroom, everybody wasn't doing the same thing. And that's when it gets a little dull, you know, when we have to have this rote learning, everybody learns the same thing. Um, When maybe your interest is somewhere else, you know, you got a lot of kids who can't sit still in a classroom and maybe they should be outside running around and learning physics that way. That's okay to do in Finland, but it's not okay to do in the United States. So I think we could do a little bit better. Yeah, especially, you know, we, we're trying to keep these kids in a, in a tight space when it's the age where they are so active and are very physical. And then we go, well, kids are so obese and they have ADHD. And it's like, yeah, which came first? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Huh. I wonder how that happened. Um, in the, is there something in the book? That or is there something that you wanted to include in the book that you had to take out for whatever reason, but you're just like, oh, I wish I could have fit that scene in there or that quote in there or that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, of course. You know, I have great editors and I have great agents and and everybody weighed in. You know, I I had a chapter, two chapters that I had to cut um, and. It was really hard for me to cut them. Um, one was, I, my my agent probably had a very good point about this. It was um, later on the book, Elizabeth Zott is, you know, on her television show and she gets a call from the White House because the Cuban Missile Crisis is happening. And if someone's going to address the nation, instead of it being John F. Kennedy, they have Elizabeth Zott address the nation because she's so rational, so calming, so practical. She will tell everybody what to do. But the part I loved about the chapter was at the very end where she tells Khrushchev exactly why he should not be doing what he's doing. 
And now that Putin is in play, I think I think this chapter would have really resonated with a lot of people because she's just like, listen, you're in big trouble and you are going to regret this and you're not going to beat us. So if I were you, I'd leave now. And uh, I loved it. But anyway, that's not in. And then I had another chapter in where the dog is learning how to raise a child by observing mothers on a playground. And I love the things that he thought in his head while he's watching these mothers and what he thinks must be parenting. You know, having an editor is so powerful. And it's a reminder that we need more than one person to achieve our means. And I wish I had that with the text messages I send out to my girlfriend at times. Uh, and I tell everybody this, like what, and, and I, like, I, I'm not a great communicator via text. And so I will draft the text and send it to five of my friends and then let them edit it and then send the, the, the five. I'm like, Oh my God, that's so much better. I, I definitely didn't need to say those first two things. You're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm super grateful, but I, I think that, a lot of us think that we don't need the help of anybody else. And like, I can, I can do this. Like Stephen King even has an editor. So seeking help. I just always want to remind people, seek help. Everybody else is reach out. Absolutely. And you know, I'm really lucky to have these editors in my life. You know, they like my writing and they'll sometimes they'll go, Bonnie, going off a little bit off of the rails on this one, you know, or something they kind of have to, and then they're also looking at other broader issues like you can't go too much further because we've got a page limit here. If you go beyond a certain page, the book gets more and more expensive. People will be less likely to pick it up because it's too fat, on and on. So there's a practical thing. But yes, I had a lot of um, people who read very small snippets of the book, and I include them all in my acknowledgments because asking someone for their time to look at what you've done and just give an opinion, I think deserves a credit saying, thank you for giving up some of your time to read my work and, and, and offer some feedback. It was meaningful to me. Well, you know, that also sounds like setting boundaries. And I think that sometimes we view setting boundaries as um, stifling our creativity or impingements on our freedom when really boundaries is what allows us or can allow us to be free and expressive and get our message out. Because like your editor said, like if you wrote a 600 page book, I don't know if I picked the book up. Right. Um, and I don't know if many others would. And so now you're not getting out the message that you really want to get out. And then you're not being as efficient with the words and, and the ideas. That's exactly it. You know, before this book, I wrote a book that was 700 pages long and it never got published. No one wanted to read it because, of course, they were going, oh, my God, no, don't write 700 pages, you know, especially as a debut. And uh, and it got rejected 98 times. I had 98 rejections from agents. Um, most of them were just, you know, boilerplate. They just sort of plugged my name in and said, not interested. Um and then this one agent did read 10,000 words and she wrote me and she said, this is, you know, you write really well, but not interested in a 700 page novel. You need to think about writing a novel of appropriate length 
and then send it to me. Actually, her email was quite mean. I'm being very generous in the way that she phrased her criticism. But you know what? Even though it wasn't a very nice email, she had exactly the right advice. And I followed her advice. Now, I didn't send her my new book. I had a great agent. I didn't need to. But thank God that someone took me by the hand and shook me and said, hey, get on the right path here. Uh, there's a part in the book where you talk about all dogs bite uh, because somebody asked, somebody's walking around with the dog and, and somebody's like, does your dog bite? And you know, the response is all dogs bite. Um, and it, it just, it reminds me that um, all people are capable of biting or causing harm or, or being a threat. And it's really about, having an understanding of who you're interacting with and respecting the boundaries of that person so that we're not shocked um, if someone bites us emotionally or physically. I see you nodding your head. Yes, exactly. You know, that whole line, Elizabeth is talking about her dog and somebody's questioning, you know, does he bite? Well, of course, all dogs bite. Um, but they only bite if they've been threatened or back into a corner. Your dog is not going to bite if you haven't challenged them in an inappropriate way. So the the, the entire uh, message there was, you know, people have approached her in inappropriately a million times by that time in her life. And she's bitten a few times and they're, they've been surprised by the results. But other times she's, you know, not had to bite because people treated her with kindness and respect. There were so many parts of this book where um, I wanted to cry and I was shocked. And uh, I mean, I, I went through a gamut of emotions uh, at the towards the end of the book. One of the Elizabeth Zott talks about how she wants out. Um, and uh, I won't get into what that is, but what's really important is just that phrase of she wants out. And her coach yeah. says what you really want is to be let back in. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I want to bring it to, I want to wrap it up with that because um, there's so many people who want out of life mm -hmm. or who think they want out of life, who want mm -hmm. out of, um, uh, you know, just living when really it's about, we want to be let back in so bad. Mm -hmm. We want to be accepted. We want to feel like we're a part of. And, and so the, the advice is, uh, it, that means we have to then recommit to being back in. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think, well, you, you did a really great summary of that. You know, she is very depressed. She does want out. And I think as the person she's talking to says, you know, that's not it. It's, that you want back in. She has passion for something that has been sidelined over and over and over. And she's not allowed to do what she feels she's been on, uh, put on earth to do. I mean, there are plenty of us who feel like we might have a minor talent here or there. This particular character knows exactly what she wants to do, which may be more frustrating for her because the government and society won't let her do it. And she doesn't understand why. But I think that idea you have to say no to society more frequently 
then maybe you think you should. These people, people don't always know what's best for you, but you have a really good idea of what's best for you. And the other thing is, I think there's a person on the face of the earth who doesn't have some sort of talent or passion, secret passion, as something that they'd like to do. And the truth of it is, you can do that thing. You just have to not let these other people, they're just like, you know, hurdles in football. You're just, you just have to get through them and you will get through them. You have to do that. That's the faith in yourself. You have to come back to that. You can't hope for it. I love that. And, and what are you looking forward to, uh, Bonnie? I I know you're in London and uh, they got the Henley regatta coming up Sunday. (laughs) Is that why you moved to London? You know what? I'm not in that regatta. I can't believe it. It's like some huge oversight. Um, no, that's not why I I moved here. We were transferred here. But um, no, I you know I have a lot of things to look forward to. My kids are coming to visit on June 30th, so I'm super excited for that. And they'll be here over a week, about 10 days. Um, I have a lot to look forward to, and you know I have a lot of work right now. But all of it is so far, it's very positive and. I'm in a lucky part of my life right now. And so I'm living it. And then last question uh, that I ask of all my guests, um, because I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Barney Garmus? Oh, that is a tough one because I have had friends in this situation. I think I would say that I love them. I think that that person needs to know that they're not alone. They're loved. And if you've ever been on the other side where you've lost someone to something like suicide, you wish you could have said to them that they're loved. And that person is loved. They may not be loved by some person that they wanted to be loved by, but somebody else is sitting there waiting. And you may be the necessary component in that other person's life that they've been looking for. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS or any of the other international phone numbers. If you're in London, Sri Lanka, Budapest, as I, I thought it was Budapest, but it's Budapest. Uh, wherever you are in the world, there's a hotline for you. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank you. I really appreciate it.